This morning's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Starting in verse 1. It was now two days before Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, at Bethany Church, we love the Word of God. We love to preach the Word of God. We love to open the Word of God. We love to explain the Word of God. And last but not least, apply it. Apply the Word of God to our hearts. It is here for us to be used by us, to be challenged, to grow, to be strengthened, to be convicted, to be encouraged at different times. Uh, It knows what to do. The Spirit knows how to use it. It's sharp and piercing. Um, on certain Sundays, it may cause you joy. On others, it may cause you to feel conviction. On others, it be, might be just what you needed that day. I hope you have that experience with the Word of God and know that it is rich and truth. And that is what we do. And even the main part of our service on a Sunday morning is opening it together. If I was to stand up here and not open this, I don't have a lot to offer you. <laughs> I really don't. This is what we do. This is why we gather. This is who we are. We're people of the book a people of the text. It was written a couple thousand years ago, but it's still just as relevant today. So we're going to do that this morning as we open it again in Mark 14 and heading into the final end of the Passion Week for Jesus. Well, what is the, what is the worst storm you've been in? Think about that for a moment. I mean, weather, storm, life too, but we'll talk about that. We'll get to that. But weather, what's the worst storm you've been in? Mine was a couple years back, a couple winters ago, believe it or not, in California. Uh, we had a, uh, the wind was blowing so hard after such a long drought that multiple trees were just falling everywhere. In fact, so bad that a couple trees fell at Margot's preschool, one on her classroom, right down on top of her classroom. Uh, the streets were littered with massive trees after this storm, making uh, many of the roads just impassable. You could not you couldn't travel on them. Uh, but that, even as bad as that was for me, or as you think about the worst one you've been through maybe, um, 
nothing's really in comparison to some of those storms that hit the uh, eastern seaboard at times during hurricane season. Maybe you've seen images like this one, um, the satellite images from those storms that come to different areas of coastal regions. They're, they're breathtaking, really, and pictures don't even do them justice. First, you've got the magnitude and size of a storm like this is overwhelming. But then in a storm like that, you get 200-mile-per-hour winds. But what's amazing about these kind of storms like that these big circular swirling storms with 200 mile per hour winds, is that many times the center of those storms, the eye of those storms, is completely calm. Have you heard about that before, that that can happen in some of those storms? Sometimes as wide as 40 miles across, you can have clear skies, low winds, it's oddly peaceful, but it's surrounded by absolute chaos. That's so weird to think about. So strange. This is a picture from 1960s Hurricane Isbell that hit landfall in the Atlantic. You see there that massive storm, but you see in the middle of it an eye there that's peaceful and calm and still. Well, as we come to look at Mark 14 today, and we enter into the Passion Week with the betrayal, the arrest, the execution of Jesus, I want us to keep this image in mind. A cosmic storm was brewing around Jesus, a storm of epic proportions and, and, and consequences. And we're going to see in this chapter in the coming weeks, tension is going to rise and it feels like a coming storm, an epic storm. There's a crowded cast of characters and, and, and controversy swirling around Jesus, and yet we find him right in the eye of the storm, confident committed, caring even, when all these things are swirling around him. And Mark places these little interactions in chapter 14 with the cast of characters close together to communicate to us this rising tension, this rising storm in the life of Jesus. Today, it's the indignant betrayal by Judas. It means uh, anger, resentment, uh, unfair treatment. Indignant, that word. And the complaining disciples being contrasted with this beautiful, extravagant act of love by a woman who showed she thought Jesus was worth everything. Everything. Well, Judas and the disciples show today they don't think Jesus is worth much. And a woman who shows he's priceless. She sees on some level his value as a beautiful savior as we're going to see through her beautiful act. So this idea, it's going to be a helpful way for us to think about uh, chapter 14 and, and actually all, uh, the end of this gospel over the coming weeks, this storm coming and Jesus right in the eye of it, right in the center as we watch how he responds. That's what we're going to be looking at. Well, because too, the metaphor is, is helpful as well because it carries over in to the storminess even of our own life. Just like the passage today is we'll see Jesus confident, committed, and caring when all others begin to abandon him. In your life, he's really the only refuge. He really is. The only eye of peace, the only eye of salvation, the only place of true security. Not only for the storminess of your life, but even Mark 13, we've talked about the last couple of weeks, the coming judgment. He's the only eye, the only place. 
So grab your outline. Hopefully you got it. We're going to walk through the story together, all the while asking ourselves in Mark 14 these questions. How much is Jesus worth to you? How much is he worth to you? Think about that for a minute. Everybody here. How much is Jesus worth to you? Does he get the leftovers or your best? Those are our questions as we're going to look at this, these contrasting stories today. Let's look at the brewing storm first, though. We're calling it this. The religious elite are planning a storm of epic proportions for Jesus. The religious elite are planning this, this crazy storm. Verse 1 and 2 again. It was now the day, two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread and the chief priests and the scribes they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Couldn't be more straightforward. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar in the people. So Mark begins this section telling us what was going on. It was Passover. The Passover and unle- unleavened bread feasts, which really had been combined at this time in Israel's history. And they were two days away from this. So probably Wednesday of the Passion Week and Passover it's all, this is all significant. Mark is so compact. We know that. So when he puts details in, they're there for a reason. Uh, it, pl- it places the works and words of Jesus in this chapter into the context of Israel's history. Passover, a big feast and celebration was going on. Jerusalem would have been bustling at this time, full of people everywhere in the streets, crowds of people that had come in out of town, and it brings about the powerful, shocking effect we're going to hear of Jesus' words this week, but even more so next, Passover, as he sits in the eye of this brewing storm. Well, one thing's for certain, here's what we want to see. This is a really a festive moment a very festive moment that Jesus and the disciples are walking into. Passover, if you remember, is the great celebration of the redemption, really, the saving of God's people from Exodus, from slavery, from bondage that they were in. And every male Jew within 15 miles of Jerusalem at this time was required to come into the city for Passover, but that wasn't all. Many more came. All kinds, thousands came to the city. The celebration, you remember, it's from Exodus. Plague after plague was sent on Pharaoh. Do you remember? Plague after plague. As the Israelites were held in slavery, making bricks for Pharaoh. And the final plague from Exodus 12, God would send the angel of death to the houses, all the houses, to kill the firstborn child. But to those who observed this Passover, the killing of a lamb they did, and smearing the, 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 the blood the angel would pass over. Here's Exodus 12. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Remember this. This is a little preview even for next week. Remember this idea. We'll talk about it again next week, but Passover, it's important as we head into this, this setting here with Jesus in this chapter. But insert it into this wonderful time, this this celebration in the life of God's people. They're, They're celebrating the new life he gave them. We've got this nurtured intent of death right in the middle of this great celebration of freedom and life. This nurtured intent of death. The chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, you heard it read, 
They've been nurturing, harboring, cultivating this plot of death. You know, it's already been mentioned, actually, I think two or three other times in this gospel, their intent of death. Have you ever had those moments when you just get so worked up, you feel uh, almost kind of shaky? Have you ever had those? You're just kind of like, you can just feel your body kind of shaking. You get so worked up. That's how I envision, envision this, this nurtured, the intent of death they had. So worked up, they're, they're, they're vibrating with anger. They just can't wait to get their hands on him. And so they planned to steal him away in secret. They just needed the chance. They just needed an opportunity. Because as well, Galilean followers of Jesus would have been everywhere in the city because of Passover. And they could not afford a riot. If a riot broke out, that would give cause for the Romans to come in and regulate with force. And so they're seeking stealth, a secret opportunity. This is an intense situation, Mark's trying to say. It's really intense. All they need is one inside tip. That's all they need. One tip. Where he's going to be, what's going to be going on, will there be others around, one tip, that's all they need. Which points to the fact that Jesus at this time was, in a, was much more hidden, much more secretive. Where is he? They don't even know. We just need one inside tip. That's all they need. Judas would give it. But let's first look at the woman. The extravagant love of an ordinary woman. That's what we're going to look at. So we're going to spend most of our time today. The extravagant love of really... An ordinary woman. Take a look at verse 3 and 4 with me again. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, there's that word, why was the ointment wasted like that? Indignant, as I said, it means they were uh, angry, uh, annoyed uh, at the feeling of being something was unfair, something wrong had happened. And so they responded indignantly. But who was this woman? Who was this ordinary woman that Jesus highlights for us? That he points to here. And, and what's she doing here? What, what's her significance? And, and how does the tension even heighten in Mark's gospel because of this? And what does she have to do with us? Well, John 12 in the parallel story, you know, the gospels many times, especially uh, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, uh, many times they'll parallel things. But John has a parallel for us. In John chapter 12, he identifies her as Mary the sister of Martha and Lazarus, actually. John gives us a little more detail. It's helpful sometimes with these gospel stories to read them next to each other because sometimes they give different pieces of information that help. And this is one of those times. This is Mary, the sister of Martha and the uh, sister uh, of Lazarus, who was also present at this meal. Lazarus was there too. Think of this setting for a moment. They're there together, probably hidden in a safe, 
relaxed environment. The excitement of Jesus coming into Jerusalem during the Passover season is there. The excitement of him taking the kingdom back. They're ready, but they've got this great feast beforehand. Imagine the greatest time you've had sitting around a table with those you love and excitement and celebration and security. They were there in that moment. Imagine the discussions, though, taking place with the disciples. They're going in to take back the kingdom. Where are our weapons? <laughs> What's it going to be like when he takes the throne back? What do you think? What's going to happen? You know, are we going to be there? Is it going to be right away? You think it's going to be right before Passover or after? What do you think? All kinds of stuff. Lazarus is there. Imagine, imagine the conversations. Hey, Lazarus, how's it been since that resurrection thing? How's that, what's it been like? Or, or Lazarus, what'd you see on the other side? What did you see when you died before Jesus brought you back? I mean, it's, a, it's an, an amazing room, what, what was taking place there. It's the inner circle. And the smells of food are there and great conversation. And Jesus is finally relaxed, just getting ready for this triumphant taking of the kingdom. Simon the leopard says his house and Mark was there as well. Probably somebody that had been healed by Jesus is there too. He's hosting this fantastic evening. He's set everything right. It's all perfect. Everything seems right. And yet death is outside the door. And death, as we're going to see, has made its way into the inner circle too. In the heart of Judas. And that's the setting that this woman walks into. This celebratory feast, time together, probably good conversation, good food, good smells of food. Everybody there reclining at table, Mark says, relaxing. Everything seems right, and here comes this woman. And what she does is really the final, last act of love for Jesus before his crucifixion. It's the final thing. We have one bright spot here with this woman. This act of love that Mark inserts right in the midst of betrayal, hostility. And it's a dramatic contrast we're going to see to Judas's betrayal. And a model and a call for us to love as Jesus' followers. Here's how we're going to describe the woman's love. It's public. It's heart-driven. And it's sacrificial, we're going to see. That's the type of love she shows. This woman who walks into this great feast... Here she comes, Mary, who as we know through the Gospels, if you've read them, she's always sitting at the feet of Jesus, isn't she? She's always at his feet. When Martha's serving, there's Mary sitting at his feet. And she comes to his feet again and breaks this vial of costly perfume. And she begins to anoint Jesus' head with it, pour it on him. Sort of a strange setting for us. When was the last time you poured oil on somebody's head? We don't do that. It's just not something we do. We don't anoint people really like that. She does that. And John also tells us that she lets down her long flowing hair and even washes his feet with her hair, with this oil. She publicly expresses her love in a way that challenges all the norms of that day. She's challenging all the norms of that day. At this time, and culture, a woman would not approach a man except to possibly serve him food, let alone come wash his feet with her hair. 
Do you see what we see here? We see a woman who's been transformed by Jesus. So much so that she'll go above and beyond and actually plow through cultural norms. She's been so transformed by him. She's expressing a love, ignoring the cultural conventions because Jesus is there. He's there right now. And she loves him and she doesn't care who knows. It's public. There's people around watching. How challenging for us. I think she's one of the best pictures of salvation for us. I think she's one of the best pictures of salvation because she knows this. Jesus is not, he's not just a means to your justification. What do I mean by that? Your, your, your saving. He is that. He's about to pay for sin. He's about to die for you. He's about to make you right with God when you believe in him. He is that. But he's also working on your transformation. Through an ongoing relationship with him by his spirit. Adopted heirs, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters. Sometimes I think our fears of what Jesus might ask us or ask of us, what he might ask us to give up, or where we would have, have us go, or what, who he'd have us talk to, makes, uh, or keeps, uh, makes us keep uh, everything nice and tidy in little kind of compartmentalized boxes of doctrine. Now, our salvation's not less than doctrine. Now, hear me say that. It's very important what we believe and what you believe about Jesus, about what he's done, is of the, the, the utmost importance. But is what you believe about Jesus transforming you? That's the question. And I think that's what we see in this woman. <clears throat> that's why she's such a great picture of salvation. Are you growing in real relationship with him? And deeper in in love with Christ to the benefit of your own transformation. Because that's what we see here in this woman. She's going against all cultural norms here. She's been transformed. She doesn't just believe some things about Jesus. Her heart is taken. She's been captive by him. Captivated. So do you find yourself growing in your love for Jesus that makes you live differently? That's the question, because it's doing that for this woman. That's why she's such a good picture. She did. Her act was public, and it was driven by a heart love for a real person sitting in front of her. And what she did with that heart-driven love was costly, was sacrificial. Nard was a sweet, strong-smelling perfume. It was made from a very rare plant uh, found only in uh, India. What she had was valuable that she brought to him. The worth of a vial and, uh, of nard of that perfume was estimated at uh, a year's worth of salary. So think about that. You know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, whatever you make, a year's worth of salary is what she brought in that vial. What she brought there. It's probably handed down to her as an heirloom, most commentators think, something she was, was given. And if you think about it, it was her security. You know, it was her, it was her savings account. It was her emergency fund <laughs> in that vial. 
what she brought. And she breaks it, I think, intending to use it all. You break a vial like that that's sealed, there's no gluing it back together at that time, probably. She intends to use it all. <clears throat> what do we do with our heirlooms? I want us to think of that for a moment. What do we do with our heirlooms? Things we've inherited, the things that have been handed down to us. The things that you might say are, are, are priceless. Robin and I were given a few years back um, some amazing china from my dad um, that he gave to us, that he had. And a few years back, I was organizing our garage. <clears throat> and three out of the four boxes had been nicely packed and organized uh, in our garage with tissue paper and labeled in strong, sturdy bins there. Three out of the four, I said. So three of them <laughs> were packaged that way. Uh, they were there. They were safe. Maybe like some of your precious heirlooms. The silver that's tucked in the back of the closet, the priceless painting you have displayed, your grandfather's watch, your grandmother's brooch, whatever it is, tucked in that jewelry box. Heirlooms are precious. We hold them tight, don't we? We protect them. We put them in safe places, like those boxes with tissue paper, sturdy boxes we had. <clears throat> well, one of the boxes of China was still in a cardboard box, that fourth one. And I went to pick it up from the side, not realizing that the bottom was not taped but folded. And what happened? I picked it up. The box came, <laughs> but the China went crashing to the ground and shattered one of those boxes. It was, it was, I was upset, you know. Maybe not devastated, but I was upset. More uh, thinking about, huh, how do I tell Robin this? You know? <laughs> that was probably really what I was thinking. <clears throat> but they came crashing down from the bottom. We hold on to, don't we? We protect the valuable. We protect those cherished, valuable heirlooms. But here comes this woman with her heirloom worth a year's wages, and she just breaks it intentionally right in front of Jesus. She breaks the heirloom intentionally and she pours out the content and Jesus calls it beautiful. He says it's beautiful what she's done. I think Jesus knew her heart and it was an act of love, not for recognition, but he said it's beautiful because she did it just out of heartfelt, heartfelt devotion because the recognition she got, we're going to see, is not great. It was a heartfelt devotion there. And it's here that we see this extravagant display of love. She's like the woman, remember a couple weeks back, who gave the two coins in this same gospel. All she had, the two coins, and she gave them when nobody noticed. She pours out all she has. That's what this woman is doing. All she has. And Jesus calls it lovely. It was a winsome act. It was motivated by sincere heart worship. It was extravagant. And that is love. It's good works. Selflessly motivated from gratitude for what God has done. That's love. Good works, selflessly motivated from gratitude for what God has done. Not to gain God's approval, by what I've done, but to show thanksgiving for what he has done. That's love. 
It seizes the opportunity as she did. I mean, when would she get another opportunity like this? I mean, never really. He's going to be dead in a couple days. Spontaneous. She seizes it. How many times for you and I, the opportunity has come, something's come in front of you, an opportunity, you see it, you kind of know it's there. It's maybe an opportunity for an act of love, and it passes you by. And you just kind of go, ah, there it was. Whether it's out of shyness or fear or just worry that I won't be able to handle this opportunity, we, we let it, it passes by, and you go, oh, it was there. I kind of let it, I kind of let it go. This love, she doesn't here. She's spontaneous. She seizes the opportunity, and she doesn't actually count the cost. She doesn't count the cost. Because this kind of love knows that the priceless eternal treasure, she already had it. She already had the treasure. It was Jesus. That was the treasure, not the flask. The treasure was him. Not what she held in her hand. It was him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to fuel our active love. Christ himself is to fuel and propel and drive our active love. This one shows us that Jesus, he deserves, he deserves more than our second best or our third best. Whether it's in Love we show a neighbor, our giving to the gospel mission with either time, talents, finances. He, he deserves our best. That's what she's showing us, what this love looks like. Or in the hospitality we show one another in the church or in our community with our neighbors. She's proactive in love, spontaneous, doesn't count the cost, just steps out and loves. Let's be proactive in our love for one another, for the sake of the gospel, as she was. I mean, when was the last time you invited someone from church over to your house for a meal? Maybe it was somebody new. Maybe, maybe you risked and stepped out with somebody that you realized, yeah, they don't really have many friends at church yet. I'm going to take a shot. Or as he calls us to give of our time and our talents and our treasures, and I do this myself, it's going to be so inconvenient for me. I'm going to be inconvenienced. I just know it. It's going to be inconvenienced. If I start this conversation, I know where it's going to go. It's going to, you know, I just, you just have that. I, I, my mind goes there. I'm guessing yours is too sometimes, maybe. She doesn't count the inconvenience. She doesn't count the cost. Or if she did, she decided he was worth it. Because it cost her. We know it cost. The Gospel of John tells us Judas is the one who led this indignant complaint. Judas himself probably had to do with the fact that he was skimming off the top of the money bag as the treasurer, and she was breaking this vial that could have been sold for money. Probably had something to do with it, I'm guessing. But he led this indignant complaint. How dare you? What are you doing? We could have fed 5,000 people with that vial you just broke and dumped on Jesus' head. What are you doing? What were you thinking? That's indignant. Probably even a little more than that. Uh, even angrier than that. What are you doing? But what do we see in Jesus? He defends, praises, and promotes this extravagant love. They're after her. <clears throat> they want her head. 
not Jesus. He defends, praises, and promotes this extravagant love. First of all, how do you think this made Jesus feel? How do you think this made Jesus feel to see the disciples and Judas respond to this woman? Jesus, you're not worth one year's wage. That's what they're saying. Jesus is not worth the cost of this vial, or this vial of perfume. She's wasted it on you, Jesus. What isolation. What loneliness. He's sitting there with his disciples, these men that he's trained and leading them to the cross and what he's supposed to do for them. And you're not worth a year's salary, Jesus. What a waste. He must have felt lonely in that moment. He must have felt isolated, especially in his humanity. You're not worth it, Jesus. Jesus stands up for her, though, and he defends her. Much like he stood, remember in Acts, the book of Acts? Remember when Stephen is being stoned? He's the first martyr. He speaks truth about Jesus, and they take up stones, and they're ready to just crush him, and he looks up to heaven, and what does he see? Do you remember that? Jesus is standing there in approval for his servant dying for him. I think we get a little picture like that here. Here comes this woman offering for Jesus, loving Jesus, and they, they come after her. What are you doing? And he stands up and he says, stop. Stop. You don't know what you're doing. She does. He stands up and defends her, like much like he did in the book of Acts for Stephen. He says, leave her alone. Why? Why does he say it? He knows her act was motivated by love. She didn't want the recognition. And that pleases him. He praises it as beautiful. Gospel-fueled love, that's what pleases Jesus. That's what pleases him. He calls it beautiful. She didn't serve to get notice. In fact, we saw there, she gets ridiculed. She didn't serve to get something. This is Mary. Jesus had already raised her brother from the dead. She served because she loved him. And maybe it was sorrowful. Why does he keep talking about his death? He keeps talking about his death. Why does he keep doing this? And maybe in this loving concern and maybe even sorrow for him, she takes this perfume to anoint him. And maybe she believed, I don't know, maybe she knew something far deeper than the disciples at this point about Jesus' words about his death. Maybe not, but she might have. We've got to ask ourselves. I have to ask myself, does my devotion to Christ ever cost me anything? Does my devotion to Christ ever cost me anything? Do you ever allow yourself to be inconvenienced for your love for Jesus? That's the, I mean, that's the obvious question here today with this act by this woman. Do you allow it to? Jesus says, she has done all she could, is his words. Meaning, she's, she's given in total. She's given all she had. She's done all she could for me. This is it. She's done it all. She's given in total. Much like the widow, we said. She puts Jesus above all else. That's what Jesus means when he speaks about this serving the poor, the ongoing responsibility to care for the poor. Look at verse 7. He said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done something beautiful. In verse 7, you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you'll not always have me, he says. 
Now, as a follower of, followers of Jesus, we must care for the poor. Some have used that verse to say, see, we don't need to, to, to care for the poor. No, Jesus says it's ongoing. You, the poor will be around and you must serve them. We must. But the irony here is that Mary's gift was actually in that moment for the poorest of poor people. Think about it. A man without a home, a man without riches, on his way to die on a cross. Who was more impoverished? A man without riches, a man without a home on his way to a cross. I like what Kent Hughes says about it, this either-or idea. Well, no, Jesus is saying don't save the poor, just love him. Or Jesus, we serve the poor and forget about Jesus. Kent Hughes says, our Lord's commendation to Mary for putting him above all else, properly understood, condemned an either-or approach to our spirituality. Christians are to worship God and minister to others. The ideal is a lavish, contemplative, devotional life, sorry, it's supposed to be life, in which we love Christ so much that we pour ourselves out for others. One without the other falls short of that di dynamic Christ wants for us. It's not an either or. In fact, the two go hand in hand. And this woman who loves Christ is actually in that moment pouring that vial out for the poorest of poor. She, he's right in front of her. She's giving us a picture of this. The love of Jesus transforms and grows and percolates inside of us and overflows is what Kent Hughes is saying and what we're seeing in this woman. It's not an either or. They go together. And wouldn't you say her gift paid off? Would you say that? Jesus says it'll be remembered forever. Look at verse 9. Forever. He says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. We are still smelling the aroma of that sweet perfume today. We're doing it right now. Was it worth it? Yeah. It was worth a year's salary. Absolutely worth it. It's a resounding yes. We're still talking about it today. We're doing what Jesus said will happen wherever the gospel goes out. But it also serves today as well as an absolutely tragic contrast to this. Judas didn't think Jesus was worth much. The indignant betrayal by a trusted disciple. The brilliance of the gospel writers. We've got a woman here who finds Jesus beautiful and so does then a beautiful act of worship contrasted right next to Judas who finds Jesus useful. He finds him useful. She finds him beautiful. He finds Jesus useful. What can I get for him? What can I get for Jesus? Not only was Judas, uh, as the treasurer, as we said, skimming off the top of the bag, but John lets us know as he initiates this betrayal of Jesus here, he sells Jesus for a measly 30 pieces of silver. You know what that is? That's the price for an accidentally gored through slave. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. That's what Jesus was worth to Judas. 
the price for a slave who's accidentally gored through by an ox. He wasn't worth more than a slave to, to Judas. Now, we don't know Judas's motive. Maybe he thought, you know, I'll force Jesus' hand, and he won't let himself die. I know that. I'll force his hand. I'll, I'll sell him. He'll, he'll change course. I mean, that's at the best, thinking the best of Jesus. Or Judas maybe just really wanted out. I want out of this. Or at worst, he just thought, this guy's dangerous to everyone. We've got to get rid of him, like the Pharisees thought. We know Satan filled him, the gospels say, and yet he's still responsible for his actions. And in a verse that's is, it's, it's as tragic and sad as it is simple. Verse 10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. It's as tragic as, and sad as it is simple. He's so close to Jesus. He's been right in front of him for years, and he misses him. He's been right in front of his face, and he misses him. And the leaders, Mark says, were overjoyed, and Judas at that moment begins to look for that opportunity. When's the right time? It came a lot sooner than Judas probably thought it was going to. It's just a couple nights later. Look at the contrast between these two. Here's Mary on the left and Judas on the right. Mary is a woman with no real standing. Judas, a man, one of the apostles. Mary gave what she could to Jesus. Judas took what he could get for Jesus. Mary blessed our Lord. Jesus betrayed his Lord. Mary did a beautiful thing. Judas used his Lord. Mary served him as her savior. Jesus, or Judas sold him like he was his slave. Mary's act, notable forever, her, her devotion, Judas, notorious forever for his betrayal. Are you so close to Jesus, but you can't see him for who he is? Like Judas in some ways. You just can't see him for who he is, even though he's being put right in front of you today. Or like me. Do you have times when you find yourself unwilling to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel, unwilling to love extravagantly, and you see more Judas in the mirror than Mary when you look? How can we change? Because I want to be like Mary. I think you do too. She's put there for that reason. I want to be like Mary. How can we change? How can we grow to be more like Mary? Did you catch Jesus' words in verse 9? Listen to verse 9 again. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. Did you catch those words? Jesus is confident, this is what we know, the cross would not be the end. And the gospel would go forth. It's sort of easy to slip over and pass over in verse 9 there. Jesus is certain of his death. He's certain of that. He's been predicting it. He, he just did. He said, she's anointed my body for burial. That happens when you die. Yet, he's just as confident that the gospel is going to be proclaimed, did you hear it in that verse? In the whole world. In the whole world. The gospel 
doesn't end with his death. It begins with his resurrection. And so Jesus, in that moment, he's predicting his resurrection too. He's saying, we'll remember this when the gospel goes forward. Meaning, yeah, I'll die, but I will raise too. So he's predicting his resurrection too in that moment. So how do we change in light of that? How do you and I become more like Mary in light of that? Well, thank you, Jesus. He gave us the answer today. It's right there. It's the good news of his death and his resurrection that's going to go forth into the world, that's going to go forth into your hearts. And when we remember this woman again today, and we look at her extravagant act of love, we look at Jesus' defense of her, we embrace again in faith and love a Savior who would die for a bunch of Judases. That's what we do. And we're transformed again from the inside out. That's what we do. That's how you become more like Mary. You're here today. That's part of the process. You're hearing again. You're seeing again. You're embracing by faith again. Jesus, who would die for a bunch of Judases. And God's Spirit takes that. And even today, in real time, right now, transforms us into the type of people who will live when it's extravagant love because you've been loved extravagantly by Jesus. That's what he does. That's what this passage is for. May we grow in that love, Bethany Church. Not only for one another. It starts supposed to be here first and foremost, yes. But for those that aren't here, for those that are outside these walls, for those that would say, I would never darken the door of a church, we love them too. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, a challenging text today. The extravagant love of this woman. Uh, let us be challenged today. But let us be encouraged too because the love we show you is not to gain our salvation. The love we show you and others is in response to it. So, Lord Jesus, that's why we grow in the gospel. That's why we keep talking about it. That's why we keep looking at your work and what you've done. Because that's how we want to be changed. Lord, make us all in this room a bit more like Mary today. Willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of Jesus. Because we have the ultimate treasure. We don't have just a year's worth of salary. We have eternity guaranteed in Christ. Let us live out of that. Our bank account is full in the righteousness and goodness of Jesus. So let us live in light of that and love others. May we be encouraged by Mary today. May we be encouraged in the gospel again as we love one another, friends and enemies, for the name of Christ. Amen.